what we're seeing is that long-term studies point to kids taking drugs for more than three years, they land up really doing more poorly than their peers who are also diagnosed with ADHD and did not take drugs for three years for a couple of reasons. But two that stand out for me is one is that when a teacher sees that a child's been medicated, the teacher automatically assumes the child is unwell, in which case she feels sorry for the child and she's less demanding on the child, does not expect as much from the child as she does from the other kids in the class, which is a disaster for the child, this low expectation. And the second thing is that the child never develops habits. Today, I will be having a conversation with Abigail Gimpel over ADHD, medication, and potential conflict of interest between consumers and producers. The pharmaceutical companies, on many occasions, look more for their personal profit than to the benefit of the consumer. Abigail is the mother of six kids and an author of Hyper Healing, the Empowered Parents Complete Guide to Raising Healthy Child with ADHD Symptoms. This book is 100% related to what we are going to be talking about today. So if you're interested in it, don't hesitate on checking it out on the description. First of all, I'm very happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me. It was a real pleasure. I am a mother, a proud mother of six amazing kids. I've got three boys and three girls, and I'm a special education teacher. So I've been working with students for well over 20 years. And what I saw in my classroom was that there were a lot of kids struggling. And back then, when a kid was struggling, we would ask the question, why is this child struggling? And then we would try to figure it out. Is there emotional stress? Is the child uh, dealing with a learning disability? Is the child falling asleep on his desk and therefore perhaps not getting enough sleep? Kids tantruming, what's going on with that? We asked a lot of questions, but as I became a mom and my kids started being diagnosed one after the next, the narrative had completely changed. And suddenly we were no longer asking, why is this child not doing well? We started asking a strange question, which is, what diagnosis does this child have? And looking back at my experience as a classroom teacher, I'm wondering why we're doing that. Because each child, even though there's a list of symptoms connected with each diagnosis, there's a many different reasons why a child would suffer from those symptoms. And therefore, I felt that the dialogue was very shallow and it was very personal for me because suddenly it was my own children. So that's when I started taking a deep dive and trying to figure out what was going on and why the narrative had changed so dramatically. And my biggest question is, who is this serving? Is this serving my children? Is this serving my students? Who's benefiting from the change of narrative? Probably pharmaceuticals. There's a good chance of that. That's what I came to as I went through my research, because when we keep the dialogue so simplistic and we look for a list of symptoms and we call that a diagnosis, whereas I would say ADHD absolutely exists, the children are really struggling and I'm raising children that have struggled through school and have not flourished at, at certain times. One after the next, they really are growing into very responsible and flourishing adults, but that's a journey that a child takes. But when we keep that dialogue so simplistic, the only group that it feeds is ADHD equals medication. And when we talk about treatment of children with ADHD, as a matter of fact, I'm a college lecturer now. So I was speaking with 
a student of mine last night, and she says, I have a, a daughter who's going to the first grade. And they said she's not allowed to start first grade unless she's treated. And I said, well, what kind of treated are they referring to, knowing full well that treatment means medication, not occupational therapy, not physical therapy, not diet adjustment. It means medication. And that's a very black and white kind of outcome for a much more complex thing called an entire human being. So as with most of things in life, there's a spectrum. There's not either black or white. Most things are not binary. There's many different facets in life, or I would say every single facet of life. You either are, are alive or dead. Okay, there's some things in which things are binary. But like I like to say, everything is dynamic and complex. So there's not just one thing that affects other things, but there's many things that affect one thing. And then that thing being affected by many things, those things are also influenced by other things. But it's not like you can take a snapshot of that thing and understand it. It's a continuous movement of things that are mutually affecting and it's super hard to determine. Oh no, this is for, for sure ADHD. You, you shouldn't be complaining about your kids maybe not having it because we know we're physicians. We know everything about human health. How are you even questioning this? Where are the authority here? There's a authority bias that whenever someone is like they have a PhD before the name, they are like super important and you assume that that's truth, even though... The scientific method is precisely the opposite. Is anyone can come to a truth if they seek truthfully as you're doing. Right. And that's something that makes me very crazy, actually. And it's a narrative that repeats itself a lot. I defer to my doctor. I depend on my doctor. My doctor will tell me what to do. And it's interesting because when we talk about any other area of life, are we always deferring to somebody or are we using our own minds? What profession I'll go into? Do I defer to the president of the university, or do I think about what my strengths and weaknesses are? But somehow when it comes to our body and our health, we've managed to be so completely separated from our ability to make decisions and say, I feel uncomfortable. I feel this hurts. That feels good. This kind of food works right for me. Somehow we've completely lost. And, and it's the separation. I, I see that a lot, that it's basically separating humans from nature, from our environment, from being able to be outdoors, be barefoot, feel the sun, feel the wind, feel how our body responds to things, be able to eat natural foods and understand how that affects us. We're so separated from that in tall skyscrapers and we've forgotten how to feel our bodies. And therefore we need to run to the professional on our bodies, which we wouldn't do for any other thing. So I think we need to reclaim not only our bodies the way we feel, but also understand that when someone's struggling with something, just like you said before, and I could never have said it better, it was so poetic, there's this complexity, this is inter interconnectedness. When a person is struggling, a person lives within a culture, within an environment, with a family, with a, within a community. And if we don't keep those things in mind, then how can we diagnose one person and say, the problem lives inside your brain? Well, how do you know the problem lives inside my brain? Maybe it's a clash between me and my unique personality and my environment. And very likely that's the story. But if it's a clash between myself and my environment, a couple of challenging things happen. Number one, the people in my environment have to make changes and have to take some responsibility for what's going on with me. And number two, there's no quick fix. 
if we stick with this is a problem that lives inside your head, it's neurological, it's neural behavioral, then there's a quick fix and mom and dad are not to blame. And I'm saying this as a mother of kids with ADHD, it's not a blame thing. If my kids have certain needs, if they're more sensitive, if they have more extra energy, I have to figure out how to adapt myself to them and help them adapt themselves to the environment. But if it's not my problem, it's their problem. No one's adapting and everyone's drugging. And who pays the terrible price? It's always the kid. Your philosophy remembers me to extreme ownership. There's a book written by Joko Willink, an ex-Navy SEAL. He's quite famous, you might know him. That you have to assume the responsibility for everything going on around you. But I think that's not viable with everyone. Because if I assume the responsibility of you delivering stuff properly or doing things properly and you do the same we are going to class the interests have to be aligned but in in relationship to kids sure you are the mother you are the, the adult here you are the one responsible you are the one who should decide or should have the capacity to do the things rationally because kids are not as rational they are getting there but it's a different moment in life Yeah. And kids deserve way more respect and way more protection than we're offering them. Because on the one hand, we are shoving them with all sorts of pharmaceutical drugs. And in some cases, it's valuable. And I'm not an anti-Ritalin person. I actually have medicated three of my children for certain amounts of time. In my case, it turned out to not be a blessing for them. But it's something that I have recommended on occasion when a person is in such a state of acute struggling that they can't actually get themselves to focus on what's bothering them, what the problem is, then sometimes you just need to be calmed down and say, it's going to be okay. Let's take a step today. Let's take a step tomorrow. And as soon as you feel calmer and you're starting to feel some successes, let's work on a program for you and figure out why you're struggling. That's So therefore, it has its place in the program. But when it comes to kids, on the one hand, we're completely exposing them to social media and to whatever's going on on YouTube and to pornography and all sorts of things like that. And we're giving them that causes trauma in its own right. And I actually, as part of my book, talk about what I call screen rape, which is children being exposed at young ages to images that their brains cannot possibly absorb. So we're letting them be completely free there, but we're way over protecting them and not letting them wander around in the forest and not letting them go out and make friends or play ball at the corner yard or something like that. We're holding them tight there. So, and then we're, we're so concerned about their success. We don't allow them to fail in school because we want to protect them. But instead of that, instead of allowing them to fail and learn and grow and see where their strengths are and take a healthy journey, we're protecting them from this by giving them drugs that are going to enhance their ability for a short amount of time so that they get their good grades. So we're always trading in something in the here and now. Now you must do well for the future, for the process of learning how to do well. And we trade in nature and beauty and expansion for keeping them cooped up and poisoning their eyes. We've got this all wrong. And just to add to that, even on the discipline front, we're very scared of telling our children no, and we let them discipline themselves. 
And this is a big problem because basically when we let kids discipline themselves, it's a seven-year-old child. He doesn't know the rules. She doesn't know what's right and what's wrong. They need a parent or a teacher to help them along, but we're too scared of hurting them, of insulting them. We think they're very fragile and therefore we are always protecting them from our discipline. And in the end, what we're really doing, the same thing with the screens and and nature, we're abandoning them because they need our direction. And now we left them all alone because now they have nobody to help them decide what's right and what's wrong and build their moral compass. Yeah, I agree with you. I think that many occasions in life, there's a principal agent problem that it certainly applies here, as we mentioned previously with the pharmaceutical companies, in that you can offer someone a solution, a quick fix, as you said, that will solve the problem apparently in the short term. And we don't care about the long term because this is the only thing that we are able to tangibly evaluate. So you get your kid to perform better in the short term. You are not aware of the long term consequences, but there's never going to be a moment in life in the future in which not taking that drug is going to be better than taking it. It's like if you ask a drug addict, point to me a precise moment in history or in your drug addiction in which it was better to not take the drug than taking it. There's not a point. You have to take into account the whole process and taking into account the whole process, maybe taking the truck is not the optimal decision. Right. And I would agree with you on that. As a matter of fact, that was a a brilliant analogy you gave with the drug addict. I had never put that together that way. Asking a question, is there a point? That was really interesting. Thank you. As a matter of fact, what we're seeing is that long-term studies point to kids taking drugs for more than three years. They land up really doing more poorly than their peers who were also diagnosed with ADHD and did not take drugs for three years for a couple of reasons. But two that stand out for me is one is that when a teacher sees that a child's been medicated, the teacher automatically assumes the child is unwell, in which case she feels sorry for the child and she's less demanding on the child, does not expect as much from the child as she does from the other kids in the class, which is a disaster for the child, this low expectation. And the second thing is that the child never develops habits. So whereas the other kids are having a rough time, a kid with ADHD going through school, they struggle socially, emotionally, academically, they're really struggling through. But as they fight through it, if they get some guidance and some kindness, then they will learn skills. They will eventually learn after the 10th time that they say something socially inappropriate, and get smacked for it, they'll eventually learn that's not the right thing to say. And they'll eventually learn that if they have their papers all over the floor around their desk, it doesn't work. And they need to get some help with organizing it. So they are meeting their environment and their environment is really rough for them because these kids don't do well with those kind of expectations that schools demand of them. And they need to learn how to do that better. But they will gain more skill than the kid who's been medicated for all those years, especially social skills. Interesting. So it happens here as self-fulfilling prophecy. You expect from the kid less because he's being medicated. Even if he was medicated with placebo, then it's not making any neurological effect pharmaceutically. He might be affected by the placebo in the way of performing better, but that's a completely different thing. What I was referring to is that 
the fact that the kid is get being medicated will make the teachers, as you said, expect less from him and demand less. So that will make him right. learn less. And it's a self-fulfilling prophecy in which you can build things out of thin air. Right. And the child sees it. A child knows that thing unless is expected of them. And I call it the curse of low expectation because when a child knows that you expect less, then they know that you think they're less. And then they perform accordingly. The more we expect of people within a reasonable amount, you know, they have to be able to do what we are expecting of them. But the more we expect you're a healthy person, you can do this. Okay, you need some help to do this. It takes you a little bit longer to do this. No problem. So you have dyslexia. Will you be able to read? Oh, absolutely. You're not disordered. You're not disabled. You have a major struggle with reading and decoding. And you also have blessings that come with that. It's not binary, like you said. It's a full picture. So you're having trouble with the reading. Does that mean that you can't think? Does that mean you can't remember? So let's work on the skills that are you're strong with and take one step at a time to build your reading skills as well. But once you say, oh, this kid has dyslexia, let me let him slide. Let me do the homework for him so that he doesn't feel bad. What we've done is clipped his wings, which is really, really bad for him. And he's going to pay a huge price for it later on. I recently read a book called Blueprint, How DNA Makes Us Who We Are by Robert Plumbing. And I think that his views are going to be found by you quite controversial, but maybe you are already used to hearing this. But the basic point of the book was that DNA is not the biggest influence in determining who you are, but it is the biggest one and bigger even than all the other facets in life combined. Mm. Okay, so obviously I've heard that a lot and I don't completely reject that at all. But okay. I would say that there's, there's a lot of nuance to that. I'm trying to remember the name of the doctor who said the sentence that I repeat a lot, so I should probably remember his name at some point. What he said was, your genetics load the gun and your environment pulls the trigger, which means that your genetics are incredibly important, but your environment, how you live your life, the food you eat, who you surround yourself with, where you place yourself within this universe is what's going to determine what happens. So it could very well be that one of us or someone we know has genetically wired to develop breast cancer, but because that person chooses to be in a very common, peaceful environment, chooses to have a very healthy lifestyle and a balanced life, that breast cancer is never going to develop. And I'll give an, a personal example. I have two sons that have developed celiac. One of them right after his MMR vaccine, you know, cause it's uh, not necessarily the cause of it, but he got very sick right after his vaccine and tanked from there. The other one is unclear, but they always say that autoimmunity is genetic. And I'm looking back at my family tree and my husband's family tree, and I don't see any autoimmunity. There's, it's just not there. So it very possibly is genetic. And there's two of our sons have it. So that it's got to be somewhere. But it's the environment that our kids are growing up in, specifically the pharmaceutical environment that most probably contributed to bringing that out. It could have laid dormant their entire lives, just like it did for my generation, my parents' generation, and my grandparents. But the fact is that whereas I got maybe 14 vaccines as a child, my kids got 72 doses of vaccinations as their childhood program. 
So therefore, something's going on with that. What's going on with the air and the water? We're more and more polluted as we come along. And the kids are way more stressed than they used to be. Can I point to one specific thing? Can I point to glyphosate and say that they're spraying that all over the place? And maybe that's the reason that it's triggered autoimmunity. I can't say that. But what I can say is what's happening is that our environment is triggering things that are preloaded into our genes. And we get to decide what's going to be expressed and what's not going to be expressed according to our choices. And we are not victims of circumstance. It's not a matter of, oh goodness, I just got a raw deal. I got bad genes. And we like to be victims. Western society, for some reason, we just love being victims. I'm a victim of my bad genes. No, you're not. Western society? Yes. yes. What, what society does like being a victim less than Western society? That's a good question. Maybe I shouldn't just blame Western society. I live in the <laughs> Middle East where there are a lot of victims. So I would say <laughs> you have so many good points. Yes. So for some reason in our generation, people really elevate victimhood to some kind of uh, high pedestal. And I'm so lost by it. I don't understand it. It used to be really cool to be empowered and to be able to make choices and affect your future. But uh, for some reason, that's gone. I don't know where it's gone. And I don't like what they've replaced it with. But the scientific theory is correct. And the outcome of it, I would say, is not correct. Doesn't the fact that the, the doctors are telling you that maybe there's a trait in the genetical tree of your husband or, or from you that might point out to this disease or problem make you extremely skeptic? Because you can hide every single bit of dust under that rock. You can always right. say that. There's nothing you yeah. can say that with. I would agree. And I think that it deflects from the very obvious things that we're seeing in front of us. It deflects from the fact that, and we talk about genetics and then we talk about epidemics. So we have an epidemic of autism. We have an epidemic of ADHD. We have an epidemic of childhood cancer. Genes and epidemics don't go together because that's not the way it works. Genetics move down very slowly and evenly. We're not having an epidemic of, let's say, for example, something extremely genetic like Down syndrome. That There's no epidemic of that. It's possible that it's gone up just a tiny bit because women are having babies later in life and that's a risk factor, but we're not seeing any epidemics there. It's slow, it's steady. But when we see an epidemic, autoimmunity, as you know, we're talking about celiac, that's, that's a big one. We're seeing an epidemic of autoimmunity. What's going on there? Is that all genetic? Maybe it's wired into my genes, but how is it expressing itself so much now? So if you're trying to tell me that it's genetic, then you can't explain the epidemic. And that's my big giant question with this theory. Yeah, it makes sense, your point. I absolutely agree with you. Genes are not something that appear in a region suddenly. Well, more now than before due to movement or of humans, but it's not something that can appear suddenly and make a huge impact in society. My genes are the ones inherited by my parents who lived in this region as my grandparents did. So it's something quite local. Maybe in your case it's something different, but in general it tends to be something that doesn't move quite as much as people do by their own. Or in terms of like COVID pandemic, that the virus was able to move quite a bit more than the genes of people do. And I wanted to make the case previously that you mentioned that genes are the gun being loaded and then the environment is pulling the trigger of the gun. Right. I think that life in many aspects is the trigger, is pulling the trigger 
of the gun being loaded. But I also agree that that's like one side of the argument. And then the other side, I also agree with it, is that no matter how predisposed you are to becoming an alcoholic, you will not be an alcoholic if you are in a remote island in the middle of nowhere with no access to alcohol. So right. I agree with you in some way, but I don't agree because I see, I think that there's nuance here too. There's not either mm-hmm. black or white. Right. Well, I should be an alcoholic, just saying, according to my genes. I have a good number of alcoholics in my family, and I'm definitely not an alcoholic, and nor are any of my children, so I haven't passed down the alcoholic gene, apparently. Or perhaps being an alcoholic is connected with something other than genetics. Maybe it's upbringing. Maybe it's personal choice. Maybe it's an addictive personality. And the question is, what do you do with that? How do you channel that? Yeah. So there's a lot of of nuance there for sure. I actually wanted to add, I was just thinking about this one thing. Everyone says ADHD is genetic. And when they say ADHD is genetic, the assumption is that it is some kind of disorder, disability, and that's passed down from parents to children. And my husband is really off the charts energetic. So We definitely see from parent to child, the high energy. That's very clear. He just walks through the door. I mean, you hear him when the guy walks in the house and he does more in a day than anybody I know. I actually just recently, I was complaining that I was tired and and it was, it was like 1130 at night. I had been up since six and I'd had a pretty packed day. I'm hardly a lazy person myself. And I said, wow, I'm really tired. And he says, oh, maybe your iron is low. Because to him, like there is no such thing as tired. So that's pretty remarkable. The, so the point is that there is a genetic factor there. But what we don't consider is something else that's so interesting that we say that the B vitamins are very calming. And I often recommend to my clients, to my students, to supplement with B vitamins, especially if we're seeing ADHD symptoms. There's a couple of things that I recommend supplementing. One of them is B. Now, here's the thing about 50% of the population does not absorb B properly. So when we're looking at ADHD or anxiety or depression, the question is, and you see it in family. So the doctor says, well, your father had it and you have it. So it must be genetic and therefore take these pills. But that's not the only reason that's, it might not be your brain. It might just be that you don't absorb vitamin B properly because you have a condition called MTHFR which I don't know if you've heard of that, but that's a a genetic condition where you're not absorbing and there's a solution to it. And there's also then there's a solution of taking B vitamins that are correctly absorbable for your kind of body. And therefore, when we go and run genetic, we assume genetic means diseased, but it could also mean genetic means both of us are missing one gene. And if both of us remedied that, then we actually would have no trouble at all. So we never look past the, this is this behavior, your father has this behavior, your son has this behavior, the mother has this behavior, and the daughter does, and therefore it's a genetic family thing, and therefore it's real, therefore it's in your brain, and therefore we need to fix it. It's very disappointing. When it comes to judging the situation of your kids or yourself, like mm-hmm. you, you were just mentioning a second ago that you were feeling tired sometimes and that you had a quite packed day. I'm not, I'm not claiming that you are a lazy person in any way. I, I, I know your lifestyle. I'm just saying, if you were claiming that you were being tired and you might be able to think of a way of, of solving it, I like thinking of this as a bottleneck. I think that health is like a pipeline that mm-hmm. water is coming through it 
and whatever problem you have is like a circle that's closing and it's making the water not be able to cross. So you, by recommending the vitamin B, are saying there might be one of the things that is affecting you not be able to make the fluid pass, that's the vitamin B. So you, by taking vitamin B, are increasing the, the pipeline. So there's many, many things that could be doing the, the effect of the bottleneck, but do you think partially that could be placebo effect that you are taking something people say that this is effective and then you like they say previously this could also be a sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy that because of you believing in it it will happen well i certainly believe in placebo placebo is very powerful and it connects also with prayer and faith if i believe god is listening to me then things are going to happen well and the fact where you you kind of put i i've forgotten what it's called two times in one conversation but where you put it out to the universe that you need something. Serendipity. Perhaps, perhaps. There's another name for it. It's a theory. And I try it all the time. I do it only with the parking lot. I say to myself, as I drive in, I say, I'm going to find a spot right by the entrance. I'm going to find a spot right next to the supermarket. And I put it out there to the universe. And it works 90% of the time. And it's remarkable. I could, I could be driving into a huge stadium with a big game going on. And I'm not parking in the back. I'm always going to try to park in the front because I'm going to find a spot because I'm putting something out there. So that's the placebo. That's serendipity, we can call it. That, that is faith that, that the universe is responding to me. So yeah, so taking a, a B12 or something, and that's not necessarily what I recommend to everybody. And B12, you have to do blood tests for. Just putting that out there as an example, or let's say omega-3 or magnesium is my big favorite. But these things have power in themselves. They definitely affect change in your body. But I actually just recently recommended that someone take these multivitamins that I really love that, that are very helpful for anxiety, depression, and also ADHD symptoms. And the dose of it is from six vitamin pills and up. The person started taking two. And within a week, he wrote to me and said, I'm feeling so much better. That is the placebo and good for him. He felt cared for. He felt like he had done something for his health and that made him feel better. Now he's going to continue to feel better as he ups the dose and gets to the correct effect on his body. But yeah, placebo is wonderful. Yeah, there's a lot of power in our mind that a lot of times is not used properly. Yeah. And being told by teachers that you are incapable of dealing with a problem is inverse placebo. They are like giving you a pill that will hurt you. Even if it's your sugar, it will hurt you. Sure. I actually write an entire chapter about that in my book, which is called Exchange Curses for Blessings, where we really have to dig back into our lives and see where we've been cursed. As a little kid, as a, as a high schooler, wasn't so little, I guess. As, as a high schooler, I remember my principal calling me in and saying, listen, Abigail, you're failing at math, 10th grade geometry. I could not understand that stupid stuff. And he gave me a choice. He said, listen, you're failing. So you can either fight through it or you can drop out and then you won't do 10th grade math. As a 10th grader, I was like, yeah, great. <laughs> I've been suffering. I don't want to continue doing math. That's awful. But that very day I became the kid who can't do math. Instead of saying, let's find you a tutor. Let's give you uh, some extra hours. What are you not understanding? He went straight for, you're the kid who's not good at math. Let me take you out of the class. Everyone else is going to go forward and pass these tests, but not you. 
And even though I got a hundred and in, in, in university math, I was still the kid who was bad at math. And to this day, it's still a struggle. Like my kids ask me math questions and I look at it and I'm like, oh my God, not math. I'll do anything else. But I understand it. It doesn't matter. This allergy to that. And we all get cursed at different times, either being told that we're stupid or that we're smart or that we're, that we're incapable, that we're ADHD. All of those things are some kind of curse and they're very, very dangerous for us. And, and we really have to figure out what they are and they become preconceived notions. They become part of us. I'm the person that doesn't do math. I'm the person that's lazy. I'm the person who doesn't know how to ask questions, all that. So I was a, as a kid, a nickname I was given was mouth. Now think about that as a nickname. What is being insinuated when you're being called mouth? That, that you're you, the kid. That you only function as speaking or eating or doing the things that a mouth do? Yeah, you're the kid who talks too much, eats too much. It, it, it's not a compliment. And when you're told your mouth, this is you are mouth, then it's like, oh my God, maybe I shouldn't be saying something. Maybe I talk too much. Maybe I should keep my mouth shut. Clearly hasn't worked out, as you can see. But that's a curse. And even the positive things, let's say I would say to you, you know, you're really smart which I, I wouldn't be off if I said that. So I say, you're really smart. Now, here's the problem. You now need to always be smart. And you need to not let anyone know that you might not be smart sometimes. Or you might not get what's going on. You might have to ask a question because no one could know anything. But you might shy away from asking questions and getting information that you don't know because you have a secret now to hold on to. You need to be smart all the time. But if I said to you, you're a really hard worker and you really think things through a lot. And I see that you love to read and gather information. Once again, both of those comments are true. The one comment is might shut you down and it becomes a curse. The other comment is going to push you along because all of those things that are just complimented, they give you strength because they're all choices and they're all something that you decided to do and you do well. So you're going to want to go grab the next book. And you're going to want to go think about and ask a question about it. So when you're a hard worker, you work hard. But when you're smart or you're stupid or you're ADHD, that shuts you down. And these are dangerous messages. And we really have to be careful with our mouths to not pass on these curses to people. That's like the social standards that people around you will expect you to be systematic. When you are going in one direction, they will require you to keep going in that direction and if you start reading some other kind of books they will say oh you're not the kind of person who does that and you can respond to that by saying who determines what kind of person i am you right. no it's me so i can do whatever i want if i want to transition now towards reading i don't know biology books i will so yeah people tend to expect you to be Systematic, I think is the correct word, that you have to keep going in the line that you have established previously so they can predict the trajectory of where you will be in the future. But someone right. who's just moving randomly is not predictable, so people are not comfortable around that because they don't want to not be capable of predicting things around them. Sure, and we like predictability, and we like things to be in order, and we like to know the answers to everything, and we like to have answers to everything. That's not the way the world is. We have to be expecting to be surprised. 
And that makes life so much more interesting and so much more desirable to jump right into what's going to happen around the next corner that I'll learn from instead of I will just want to stay in my square and do what I already know and hang out with the people I already know. Shame, because you, you miss out on the real flavor of life. And, and it's good. And I see that you're a seeker and, and you're always seem to be reaching out in different directions. Even just the books you quoted just now, lots of different styles, which are all very interesting. I find it really interesting that there's in game theory, the well, also in finance, but there's one thing that's the hypothesis that the market is rational. That not the market, but people around you is rational. So there's no free car spots for your car in the entrance of the place you mentioned previously. That's assuming that there's no free $100 bills in the floor because they will have already been picked. But you, by thinking, hey, the people are thinking that the market is rational. They are leaving opportunities on the table. I'm going to be the one who picks it up. And you, by thinking that there might be a spot for your car are being able to take an opportunity that most of the people will not. Right. And I know <laughs> from, from a very young age that not only are people not rational, but the world is not predictable. And uh, I've been privy to that for a long time. I think that people who know that are, are better prepared to engage life properly. Was the moment in which you realized when, when you were cold mouth by your classmates, was that the moment in which you started realizing that people around you might not be rational? Because the thing, well, not in that exact moment, because you were thinking of it seriously, like every single kid does. When someone around you calls you something, you really think of it if you are not mature enough. So in the process of maturing, you might have been able to call the rationalities in the people around you. But when you are immature enough, you're not able of calling, hey, you calling me mouth is actually rational because... I'm not coherent. The person who I am is not coherent with what you were trying to imply of me. So I think it was after that moment that you became aware of the potential irrationality of the environment. It's not either black or white. It, it's also a, a transition. I'm sure that we can all become more aware of how irrational the environment can be. Right. So in my case, it was, it was more in my family. There was a lot of chaos going on there. So as a little kid saying like, where are the adults around here? Because they were busy getting divorced and there was a lot of other things going on in my environment. So having that kind of background, as I mentioned, I am related to some alcoholics. So there's definitely was some a good bit of chaos. And that as a little kid, you internalize as life is not rational. Life doesn't travel in a straight line. And I have a choice. Either I could be the victim of this mess or I could take the skills I have, take the understanding I have and run forward with it and make my best life. And I'm blessed. I'm sure that I've had a lot of help along the way, but part of the blessing of having seen from a young age that life is not a straight line and it's certainly not ra rational has helped me be able to see out of the box for so many years. And I hope I've passed that on to my children because that's definitely not genetic. So you are always trying to build from the tools that you have. Whatever the situation is given to you, you will always try to improve it the most you can. Right. And there are things that we think are terrible. I learned this from my son. One of them that's dyslexic. I mentioned dyslexia before. When uh, So I used to take him to this program once a week. It was a big drag. And I took him out of school. He missed a, a day of school every week. 
And but it was important that he go. And he jumped out of the car one day. I was dropping him back off at school for the last hour or two. He said, "You know what, Mom? When I get older, I'm going to be even better off than all my friends." And I said, "Why is that?" He says, "Because I'm going to know how to read, but I'm also going to know how to overcome challenges." So. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's anyone who said it better than this guy. Yeah, because when you are surrounded by your teammates, the only standard to achieve status is by doing the thing that teachers are telling you to do. But if your mother is telling you something that will only be understood much further in the development of maturity, and you are able to grasp the concept and say, oh, there's something bigger, and your kid took it when their kids in his class were not mature enough to grasp this concept, They were all trying to fight to see who is the one who reads the best, and your kid was suddenly able to see something that he will, not he, but mostly all the kids aren't really focused in something that bigger in capacity than what they what their teammates are. So he, right. people in their class are only focused in reading, but he was able to see that long term, more satisfactory. I think. Right, and if we can grab life that way, then we'll see that uh, you know. And I say. I have six children, a bunch of them diagnosed with ADHD, and I follow that up with, and I'm so lucky, and thank God. I always say that, and Why? people look at me, they're so strange. And the truth is, I say, these kids, they have put me on such a journey. They have helped me develop my skills, develop my sense of humor, develop my ability to be flexible, and we've worked together as a team. They're doing great, but they've dragged me along for the ride. I'm a much better person because of my kids and I'm, I'm blessed by their challenges and I'm blessed by my challenges. I think it couldn't be otherwise because if you thought, if you face the situation you are now having with a different mindset, I think this is quite binary. There's only either the way of going to the positive side of the spectrum or to the other side of this situation that is given to me could be much better and I should be complaining constantly about it. So you by being loving and just being grateful for whatever you got and that mm-hmm. the fact that you have six kids that are alive is something yeah. remarkable that many people wish they were able to have such a great family as, as you have. So you are able to appreciate whatever you have. That's, right. That's remarkable. A couple of years ago, I, I lost a pregnancy. I know that six is a lot. I get it. I see your face here. Um, so I lost my seventh pregnancy midway through. And when I woke up from the surgery after losing the pregnancy, a friend who worked in the hospital was standing right next to me. And she says, how are you doing? And I gave her a big smile and I said, I feel so grateful because just by going through this experience, I know how lucky I am that I've had six healthy births and six healthy children. Who could be luckier than me? I'm, I'm a very blessed person. So I, I think that we have to look at life that way. And uh, it gives us a lot of strength. But you wouldn't be able to look at life in that way if the order of the occurrences was different. If you had the mm-hmm. miscarriage, the first kid that you had, and then you were going to have six healthy kids by not having those kids previous to your miscarriage, you are not able to face the situation with the philosophy that you currently have because you are not able to say, oh no, I will be successful in in having kids in the future. And that's actually a super big blessing. But because of you not being able to see it because those kids are not in the past, but in the future, 
you get depressed. Right. So maybe certainly much more challenging. That would have been a much harder challenge to overcome. And once again, I'm grateful for the challenge I was handed, as opposed to a challenge that many other women face. I think that religion makes a big difference here. Yes. If it wasn't for it, I think that many people wouldn't be able to affront their life situations. I'm not a religious person. I'm quite a skeptic. I wouldn't call myself an atheist because I don't have a rigorous theory against religion. But I, I'm really, really a skeptic. And without a religious faith, I feel like I cannot argue for the meaning of life in a sense of whatever is given to me is worthy of being lived. Mm, and yeah. you can. I can. Yeah. That's definitely a uh, cornerstone of my, my existence every day. Because it's easy for me to live such a good life that I'm currently living. I'm young, I'm healthy. I'm part of yes. a country that's not being invaded. I cannot complain. <laughs> right. So if this wasn't the situation and I, and I was old and healthy and part of a country that was being invaded, just uh, to mention some facts that could make my life a bit less well off, I think the propensity of me to commit suicide or to be less happy with my life will be much bigger than in your case. Yeah, I would tend to agree with that because, uh, yeah, a religious mindset definitely is about feeling more connected to a bigger picture and knowing that there is a reason for everything. There's a meaning. Nothing's random. And, and that's very, very powerful. Mm, so nothing being random means that things are put in your life with a meaning behind. Exactly. And so therefore, I'm going to grab every opportunity to grow. I know the Jewish religion, when we open our eyes in the morning, I'm talking about religious Jews, the first sentence that we say out of our mouths, and we kind of say it as a mantra, and it's, it becomes part of our daily existence. We say a sentence that's just, thank you for existing. I open my mouth in the morning to say, thank you. Start my day with thank you. And that's exceedingly powerful. How responsible do you consider yourself? for the ADHD of your kids, not in the sense of maybe if you had done something else in the upbringing of them, they wouldn't have developed it, but in the sense of you chose your partner. I did, and I chose well. No, no, I'm not, I'm I, not, I'm not saying the opposite. I'm yes, not, I'm not responsible at all, just like they're not responsible for my challenges, nor are you, and, not, and I'm not responsible for yours. I'm not responsible for their challenges, but... I know that as a, their mother, I have an incredibly powerful role to play. I believe that every single person gets the blessings and the challenges that are right for them. And I chose for them the right father, I think. And I also think that they chose me, my kids. And therefore, we're the right fit for each other. And I didn't cause their challenges. And uh, we can't control genetics. And we can't control what we have here. We could only control how we respond. And I think in the response, if I was just had my eyes closed and I was just relying on medication, then I would be quite responsible for what was going on. But I'm making the best choices I can make and that's the best I can do. Mm, that's the point I did in, a, in an episode I recorded about repentance and questioning its rationality. I said that mm -hmm. in no moment of your life, you're doing the second thing that you consider the best in that situation. You're always doing the top one. Right. So there's no point in repenting. Right. Looking back and feeling sorry for what you've done, it doesn't bring you anywhere. Obviously, if you're looking back 
in order to improve, go for it. Because it's something that I say to my kids a lot. There's no such thing as failure. There's only success and a learning experience. You either win or you learn. We win or we learn. Very nice. Exactly. So that's, uh, you said it more poetically than I did, but it's the same message. <laughs> Perfect, Abigail. It's been, it's been great. I really enjoyed the, the talk. Where can people find more about you? So you can go to my website, which is called hyperhealing.org. And you can leave me a message. And I always answer. I love questions. I love comments. You can check out my book on Amazon. It's also called Hyperhealing. And I am on Instagram as well. People leaving messages on Instagram. I get into interesting conversations there too. It's hyperhealing.adhd. And I'd love to hear from you. And uh, let me know if you picked up my book and you absolutely loved it. That's good for me too. It's always good to get a good compliment, of course. Yeah. 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 I will. I will check it out. And I, okay. I, I promise you, I will buy it. I'm not promising I will read it thoroughly, but I will. It's the first thing I will do after finishing this podcast. I will buy it and I will check. <laughs> it's a long book. Is it? How long? I, I can, as 400 pages, I cannot even believe I wrote that much. And, we, and I had finished writing it during the first lockdown. So <laughs> that's pretty shocking. How's the process of writing a book? Oh my God, don't do it. Don't do it. It is exhausting. It is, it's wild. It's wild. Like to the point where you can't even look at your own book at the end. It's, it's really hard. But at the end, I, I feel very gratified that I did it. But uh, it, it's, it's some serious hard work. Let me know as a book writer if something that happens to me in podcast also happens to you writing books. When I do a podcast, I'm dissatisfied with how it turned out because I'm the only person aware of the potentiality of the comments that I didn't do. Right. I didn't mention these things that were in my head, so I wasn't able to articulate the thoughts in a way that was optimal. But as time passes, my thought of the potentiality of the podcast disappears because my memory is not perfect. And the only thing that is permanent is the actual podcast itself. The thing that was real, real the, the thing that's, that materialized itself. Right. And when I hear my podcast, as I forgot the potentiality of my words, I consider my podcast more fulfilling or more satisfying than it did just after finishing it. Interesting. So in book writing, you edit it so many times that if you don't get it in on the 28th edit, then you miss the boat and too bad on you. But with a podcast, it's spontaneous and you really have to ask the right question. So I could see why you'd be more disappointed. I definitely, when I see the book, I'll, I'll say, oh, I could have added this or that. But before I published it, I said to myself, don't do that. Don't do that. Just like what you have. And it's the same thing I say to, to parents of children. This is the one. It's exactly the way it's supposed to be. Love it. And that's it. You want to make a second edition of it one day? You want to change certain things? Great. But right now, this is the product and just embrace it. It's great. It's going to help tons of people. And it already has. And um, I'm very gratified by the response I get and by how much it's been helping people But I, I try very hard not to regret because that's human nature and I could easily slip right into there. So I think both of us have to congratulate ourselves on our work, enjoy our work and, uh, and feel good that we're, that we're putting out good information for the world to enjoy. As long as you are aware that you are doing the best that you can, you should be happy about it. Yeah, you can't do better than your best. <laughs> 